0: Give Me Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a
1: California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically.
2: You are, in fact, the avocado of the fortnight. So that's just like I don't even know how. (laughs) And as I I said,
0: I was like, I just like I've really arrived in like the housing policy circles, right? (laughs) In the strangest way possible.
1: Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Wednesday, September 2nd. Aren't you impressed that I actually got the day and time right, considering I've had relatively little sleep? I'm very impressed. Thank you. Today, Wednesday, September 2nd. The eviction deal that was, and the duplex deal that wasn't. Ah, pithy. We will be talking about the absolutely bananas end of the legislative session, which featured, among other things, a crying baby, senators swearing at each other, Zoom madness. I'll just say Zoom madness broadly and then some incredible late night legislative action. We'll be focusing on two things specifically, and those things are. The
2: new state law that aims to prevent, and you see some of my couching, evictions of tenants due to the pandemic for the next few months and also a proposal to end single-family zoning in California that did not pass.
1: We realized there was a ton of housing business that did and did not get done, but those were the two marquee things that happened on a very, very late Monday night that was absolutely bananas. And we have the perfect guest to talk about this with. Who do we have?
2: We have Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks from the East Bay, uh, Northern California, and she is the perfect guest for this one because she made national news. Viral uh,
1: sensation, Buffy Wicks.
2: Yes, for bringing her her one-month-old baby to the floor late Monday night assembly floor to present and vote on a bill because she was not allowed to Vote remotely.
1: Which was a decision, at least approved by Speaker Anthony Rendon, who plays heavily in this episode. Buffy Wicks, who now has some national fame, longtime fan of the podcast. So if you want to be like Buffy Wicks, listen to the podcast. That's all I'm saying.
2: So in addition to Assemblywoman Wicks being the perfect guest for this fortnight of the podcast, she has also gotten another honor during this fortnight.
1: She is the avocado of the fortnight. Our rhythm is off because it's been a little while. But yes, the assembly member actually is the avocado of the fortnight. The first time we've had someone be a guest and the avocado, I believe, on the same episode, as well as introduce legislation to fix a previous avocado, which we get into in the interview. The avocado being our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. And Liam, you referenced why
2: she was on the floor with her baby. Tell us a little bit more about that. So she was there to present in the wee hours of the, I guess you say wee hours of the morning, but actually I guess it was the late hours of the evening. Yes, 1130. Yeah, post-1130 to talk about why she believed the duplex bill that we're going to talk about, SB 1120, was the right thing to pass. There was uh, all sorts of drama, mask falling down, baby crying. It was a very dramatic moment. And here is her speech.
0: Colleagues, it's good to see you all. I was actually in the middle of feeding my daughter when this bill came up. And I ran down on the floor today because I strongly believe we need to pass this bill. We are 3.5 million homes shy of where we need to be right now in this state. <laughs> and Ellie agrees that we, need to, we, need, we absolutely need to pass this bill. And I know it's difficult for some of you. These votes are difficult for some of you. But it's very, very important. And I just come down here in strong support of this bill and urge my colleagues it's the simplest way we can have density that still adheres to, to neighborhood character. So please, please, please pass this bill. And I'm going to go finish feeding my daughter. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Ms. Wicks.
1: Liam, have you ever seen a baby on the floor of the Senate or Assembly in your time here?
2: I want to say yes. I mean, I don't think I've seen a one-month-old. That is really a baby, you know? That's like baby, baby. But yeah, no, I think, and I may be wrong, but I know multiple Assembly members recently have had children, you know, obviously pre-pandemic, and they've been brought in at various times to be, you know, cooed over. And so, yes, I've seen it, but certainly not as dramatic as uh, what happened on Monday. So that concludes the avocado of the fortnight, and we'll get into more of the
1: absurd circumstances behind it with Assemblymember Wicks herself. Let's talk about the eviction deal first, and then we'll get to the failure of the duplex bill.
2: So we had a situation where obviously we're in the middle of the pandemic. The pandemic has not only hurt people's health, but it has been economically devastating since March, you know, millions out of work. And there was an initial response, particularly by the federal government, to sort of help people financially tied themselves over. And so that sort of expanded unemployment benefits, which in many ways were kind of helping people pay the rent. But at the same time, there were a lot of kind of folks falling through the cracks and what ended up happening without sort of a really robust federal eviction ban and really nothing that had been approved at the state level that would cover the entire state. There was this real patchwork of local measures that were kind of sort of aimed at preventing folks from getting evicted during the pandemic. The real thing, though, that was going on at the state level was that the state court system had decided essentially to stop processing eviction cases, but that sort of could not go on forever. And in fact, the court said, hey, listen, governor and legislature, we're going to start doing this again on September 1st. And so you need to figure something out if you want there to be protections at that time.
1: And so the legislature does what the legislature does, which is they wait until the very last second.
2: Absolute last moment, yes. Literally, literally the day before, I guess a little
1: more than 24 hours before the eviction moratorium that the Judicial Council put in place expired. And so late on Monday... Well, let's back up a little bit.
2: Yeah, because we I mean, there's a timeline where like because of rules that the legislature abides by legislation has to be in print published for 72 hours before it can be voted on. So really the deadline to kind of produce a deal was on Friday. And in order to do that, they had to kind of coalesce around a bunch of different interest groups to be able to say this was something that was okay. And I think in part, and you can get into this in in more depth, because the urgency of passing something and the rules thereof, they needed to have two thirds of both heads of the legislature to say yes. And so why don't you, Matt, kind of take us through where everybody was kind of negotiating and and pointing to as, as we got to Friday?
1: Sure, and I recommend people take a look at a couple of the pieces I wrote that broke down what's in the deal and then specifically kind of what each relevant inch group did and didn't get out of it. I broke some of what was in the deal, I want to say Wednesday or Thursday of last week. And so that the compromise I think was mostly signed off before Friday, but they were holding it because there were a few key issues that had yet to be ironed out and because perhaps... The longer you wait to introduce legislation, the less time there is for opposition to rally around it. One school of thought. I think the best lens to look at this, there are three main groups that have been affected by this eviction moratorium and by the overall kind of financial catastrophe that seems to be looming in the rental housing industry. One is the obvious one, renters, the renters and tenants who have either missed rent payments or are going to miss rent payments. The most reliable stat I like is the UC Berkeley Turner Center analysis, which is, you know, 1 million renter households have experienced a job loss. And that was through June. So when people do talk about the scope of this problem, it is potentially hundreds of thousands, maybe even more people who are missing the rent payments and could be at risk of Evictions. That's the renter situation. Then there's the landlord situation. So the people who are owed those misrent payments, who haven't been compensated for it, which might be particularly problematic for smaller landlords who have mortgages and don't have a ton of resources to meet their monthly mortgage payments if they're not getting rent payments as well as other bills, right? Utilities, upkeep of the property.
2: You know, landlords have gotten some relief or many of them have under federal programs that offer what's known as forbearance, so sort of a deferral of those mortgage payments, but those still have to be paid back. And many of those kind of deferments were for six months or to a year. And so we're kind of nearing the point when those deferments are over. And so landlords themselves could f- be facing these kind of massive amounting bills.
1: Yeah. And typically the mortgage products that go to landlords are not federally backed and thus not protected. I mean, some of them had some federal protections, but the majority of them didn't. So there's that. And then the third party, which I think is important in the context of what was actually produced, are the lenders, are the banks, the ones that provide those mortgages. And so they're waiting for their mortgage payments, right? Those are the three parties interest group wise were the ones negotiating with Governor Newsom and Democratic legislative leaders to come up with some type of solution. So what did they come up with? So renters, if you missed your rent between March and the end of
2: August, Let's just point out at the top here, it's like really complicated and like multiple phases. You know, I think one of the tenant advocates, I believe, tweeted this or said this in a story that I read, but it's almost like, in addition to like knowing an eviction crisis, it's almost like a know your rights kind of crisis too because you have to know what these rules are in many cases to be able to take advantage of them and if you don't no matter the protections that may exist on paper you may still get evicted and so like i don't want to understate that yes kind of follow all these rules you are in fact protected from eviction if you can't pay rent during this time but if you don't and the rules are hard to understand then you may well be there's certainly a a, a process by which that could happen.
1: of course and that's a major and legitimate concern among tenants groups yeah but
2: anyway i uh cut you off. You're explaining what these protections are. So go ahead. No, I expected that.
1: (laughs) So February 1st is the operational eviction date. That's when things could come back to normal. February 1st. 2021. That's Uh right. So how could you be evicted starting February 1st? If you missed your rent payment between March and the end of August, you can't be evicted for that. You're okay if you're a renter. If you make 25% of your rent payments from September, so starting, I guess, now yesterday, through the
2: end of January, come February, your landlord also can't evict you. So And you should note here, right, that you don't have to make your rent payment every month. You just have to make up- You could do a lump sum. You could do a lump sum at the end of January that would be equivalent to a quarter of the rent over these five months. That's correct.
1: Come February 1st, the rules go back to normal assuming there is no more state or federal intervention. So you have to make your February 1st rent payment. Just because the missed rent payments of the past, either the 75% that you weren't able to pay in the later window or the missed rent payments from March through August, just because those can't be used for the basis of an eviction, renters will still owe that money. That money gets converted to consumer debt which landlords can begin to pursue in March. There is no rent forgiveness here. The money is still owed and it's owed in a relatively quick time frame. That's something you heard a lot from tenants groups who were upset with the deal with saying, "Hey, look, you know, is the economy going to be back raging as everybody can get a job that lost one before February of next year or March of next year? That doesn't seem super realistic." So those are the terms for tenants. Importantly, evictions not related to non-payment. So other lease violations, too many people in the apartment that aren't on the lease. Your landlord says you're creating some type of nuisance that's bothering your neighbors. Property damage. Those evictions can start now. They can basically start now. That's something that tenant group's also very upset about.
2: While landlords, it seems now, as you said, can begin evictions again for some things, they can evict for non-payment, and they still do have those bills to pay. So what did they get? Did they get any further assistance out of this deal aside from, again, letting them pursue some cases? Letting them pursue some cases is very important to landlords. If, if I had to isolate
1: kind of the two things that landlords really, really got out of this, it would be one, the February date, which is relatively soon compared to earlier legislative proposals, right? And then the second is, well, what am I going to do about this tenant that is doing all this other stuff, but I can't evict them through a public health and safety exception? So those are the two big things I would say landlords got, as well as how this interacts with some local ordinances, which you can speak to in a couple minutes. What they didn't get was money. There is no actual rental assistance for tenants or landlords in this. Now, an earlier legislative proposal by Senator Tony Atkins, uh, or at least supported strongly by Senator Tony Atkins, tried to give them something which was tax credits in the future that they could sell right now. That didn't end up materializing, nor did any other type of real financial compensation for landlords. So if the money isn't coming for landlords from the state, and they still may only get 25% of it until February, Right. how are they going to pay their mortgages?
2: Because that is basically a year of very, very little rent payments potentially.
1: So the answer in the legislation is, eh, you got to kind of figure it out. That's really it. So they extended this thing called the Homeowner's Bill of Rights to small landlords defined as owning in aggregate one to four units. So if you have three duplexes, you do not qualify for this. And what it does is it prevents some bad behaviors that banks were accused of doing in the wake of the foreclosure crisis of the late 2000s, where they would basically negotiate your mortgage forbearance or modification while foreclosing on you at the same time. So that's there. The banks also have to give some type of explanation for why a mortgage forbearance request from a small landlord was denied. But there was nothing in terms of compelling a bank to provide mortgage forbearance upon request which was one of the ideas that was proposed in earlier legislation right. by uh, assembly member david chu democrat from san francisco and assembly member monique lamone a democrat from santa barbara that provision did not make it into the final bill so the the banks yeah. made out decently in this i mean what did they give So Senator Hannah Beth Jackson would say not much at all. She's a senator from Santa Barbara, and she basically lambasted the banks pretty strongly for not coming to the table. The banks will argue there are legitimate legal and constitutional questions as to what the state could have forced the banks to do. I asked a spokesperson for the California Bankers Association, did you guys threaten legal action? Did you guys say, hey, if you try to compel forbearance, we'll sue? She did not provide comment on that specific question. It was a awful situation for everyone. And what you got was a bill that a lot of people are unhappy with. I don't know how much you think of that as inevitable versus what could have been different, but that's the reality. So one key piece that landlords and tenants were at loggerheads with was how this was going to interact with these local eviction moratoriums that were passed all the way back starting in March. How did that end up coming together?
2: Yeah, I was interested in this because trying to figure this out, because there are some protections that in in theory for the city of Los Angeles that could, in fact, be stronger. Uh, But it it sort of turns out that, like, in general, the provisions of the state law, particularly when it comes to sort of switching to consumer debt or that kind of first phase of this deal, right, the March to August, state law, you know, trumps that that's more generous than what L.A. did. And then when it comes to sort of later on, L.A., again, did not kind of push to consumer debt. And so you could argue that potentially the state is more generous again. But it sort of seems to kind of still be up in the air as to what would take precedence. No one's really 100 percent sure whether a state or local measure would. So it just kind of like if you're a tenant, then you should kind of pursue all possible, you know, eviction moratoria that exist or eviction protections that exist. If you are in a, in a city that has one, then follow those rules. Certainly follow the state rules And that provides you affords you some kind of more protection than you would otherwise have. And I think kind of the real dispute over this issue is kind of in the, the later months. Uh, we're talking like February, March. And so, you know, I think it speaks to and you could sort of speak to this in the conversations that I've had kind of after this, because again, I didn't cover this bill directly. There seems to be an impression that this is very much a stopgap thing and we're going to try to figure this out again in January. And so can you talk a little more about that and what people were saying about that? Sure, that
1: was certainly the framing that as soon as the language was released, you heard. And I think one, that's partly legitimate. And then two, I think that's partly a very convenient shield because people knew nobody was going to like this deal. So here is what legislators and Governor Newsom are hoping for. New money from the feds to actually compensate for these misrent payments.
2: And potentially it under a Biden administration. This exactly. Point, right? yeah, uh-huh. And perhaps some more federal
1: forbearance relief. That's yep. what they're hoping to get. And they can come back in January and they can try to do something quickly. If they don't get either of those things, it's gonna be a similar situation where the clock is ticking and there's intense pressure from multiple interest groups. The dynamics, can change, but at also at the same time, they might be very similar to what we just saw.
2: And not only that, an additional complication is going to be that you're gonna have a whole bunch of new legislators coming in in January who, you know, unfamiliar with this deal and unfamiliar with how the legislature works and making in some ways probably even harder, particularly if you have to get another urgency measure, another two thirds measure, which seems like you would to be able to get something passed very, very quickly.
1: So I write, I have multiple eviction pieces It passes late Monday night. It goes up
2: next day. Oh, look, Trump did something. Right. (laughs) And it's actually a thing you know I think of a few months ago he, he had said I've issued an executive order for an eviction moratorium that actually was meaningless. But this week the CDC of all agencies, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, issued their own sort of order that is essentially a federal eviction moratorium. So this applies everywhere for all tenants across the country who make less than a hundred thousand dollars, yep. if you send a letter to your landlord attesting to various things like you've been financially affected by the coronavirus, you cannot be evicted before the end of the year period. And so there's some chatter about this potentially being litigated by landlords, et cetera, right? Because they're obviously upset. But this is the law of the land, or rather the executive order of the land that's going to last through our aims to last through the end of the year.
1: And so it does not usurp what California did. And California had some stronger tenant protection measures that we discussed earlier.
2: Yeah. So I think, like I said before, if you are a tenant who's been affected and it makes sense to pursue local rules, if you're there, state rules you know, now, presumably it makes sense to use the federal rules too. So if you're really worried about being evicted and you feel like you're covered under one of these programs or multiple programs, then I don't think it would hurt to pursue all your options.
1: Yes. And let's quickly say the Newsom administration actually released a website earlier today with guidance for landlords, renters, on the new rules. And yep. I checked it out. It's a decent website. Looked all right. All right. Good.
2: I'm glad you're applauding their web design. Yeah, good work.
1: We have a lot to cover. We could have spent an entire episode on the eviction deal. Instead, we are going to now move as quickly as we can. And I know lots of people are going to be upset by this. On the death of the duplex bill. So where where do you want to start, Liam? Tell us what, what's in this bill. So this is Senate Bill 1120- This is one of the successors to Senate Bill 50, which again was the very controversial effort from Senator Scott Wiener to upzone wide swaths of California, making it easier to build more densely, especially around transit. This one retained at least partially one of the provisions in SB 50, which was forcing single family only neighborhoods to allow duplexes. And in some cases, if the property was big enough, lot splits, which basically means you could put four units conceivably on the house. And also there's different type of financing mechanisms that that opens up. So at the most, it replaces one house with four units.
2: That's the bill. So many restrictions on how you could actually be used in terms of demolitions and if there was a renter there, etc. But just to give a sense of the scope, vast majority of the state that is zoned for residential is zoned only for single family homes. And there was a number, you know, the Turner Center from Berkeley put out there that if just 5% of the eligible households participated under this new bill. Nearly 600,000 units of new housing could have been produced.
1: Yes, I think that number is a little rosy, but it, it could have been a meaningful amount of supply. I think yes. that's fair to say. Although not nearly, I think, as much housing as proponents hoped would have been built under SB 50. Let's be really clear about
2: that. Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And this was the type of, quote unquote, gentle density that would be more palatable proponents thought to local governments and neighborhood associations where we're not talking about apartment buildings anymore. We're talking about duplexes
2: and maybe four units replacing one. So that's what the bill did. And did we mention the author of this bill was the leader of the Senate, Tony Atkins from San Diego. And when the leader of a legislative house authors a bill, obviously a very clear signal that this is a priority.
1: Usually it helps getting the bill passed. I'll say that. It does. So
2: this bill seemed to be, and again, I wasn't covering it, but you correct me if I'm wrong, but like this bill's kind of seemed to be chugging along as part of like these, again, lesser bills that were carved out from the Senate in the the wake of SB50's demise and kind of, again, chugging until sort of the last month or last few weeks. Sure. And then all of a sudden it got to be like it.
1: Yes. So the other parts of Senator Atkins housing package, which I believe we did a podcast about this basically died one by one in somewhat mysterious circumstances in the assembly and the committee process. Let's fast forward to Sunday. Yeah. By Sunday, there's really only three bills left for Senator Atkins. And and the, the signature bill is SB 1120. This is where The heat is and arguably the most potential to create new units. This follows in the footsteps of the Oregon duplex bill, which got, you know, national attention for being, you know, the first state to truly do away with single family only zoning. Yes. Insert ADU caveat. So on Sunday, I'm told, hey, it's gonna get a vote. And I say, okay. And so I watched 10 hours of hearings or whatever the hell it was. And then it's like, nope, looks like it's gonna be Monday. And I say, okay. So then here comes Monday. And we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And you hear some grumblings, but most people just think this is kind of common. This is a bill that's prioritized by the Senate leader, Tony Atkins. And so the Speaker, Assemblymember Rendon, Democrat from Los Angeles, is not going to put this up for a vote because he's using it right now, because he's using it as leverage to make sure
2: he gets whatever he wants out of the Senate. And this is common at the end of session for how the two houses, which have a, a rivalry, which often seemed, frankly, petty when I was co- covering the legislature, <laughs> so, sort of worked itself out. And I can say that and not you, because you still deal with these guys. So anyway, keep going. It's starting to get late. It's starting to get late on Monday. And again, to be clear, midnight is like it. Like, that's it. Oh, yeah. Like, anything that doesn't pass by midnight, done, over, kaput, Ca- you know, Vamos. Oh. right? All oh, those yeah. Things.
1: So I'm getting texts that are worrisome from some proponents of this. I'm trying to figure out what's happening. And then the eviction bill comes up. It Uh comes up for a vote first. And that was somewhat unexpected because technically the eviction bill could have been voted on past midnight. It was an urgency measure. Mm -hmm. So urgency measures can actually be voted past midnight. Then alarm bells start going off. Oh, something's happening. Uh And then it gets later and later and later. And... People are going, what's going on? Why isn't the speaker bringing this up for a vote? The speaker is the one that basically controls what gets voted on and not. Yeah. So fast forward to 1130. We got half an hour. All of a sudden, I look up. (laughs) I finished the eviction stuff. I look up. The bill's being voted on or it's being heard. It's being debated. There's half an hour. They got half an hour to pass it. But the key is that not only do they have to pass it, Because it got amended in the Assembly, it has to go back to the Senate for a
2: vote. Right. It's called concurrence. So that takes some time. Well, and- again context overwhelmingly passed the senate no real doubt that it would pass no. the senate again if it got back there right the real no. key vote the vote that would seem to be the meaningful one was the assembly
1: and so 11:30 there's floor debate assembly members are rising to speak in favor or opposition to the bill including assembly member wick who we interviewed 11:45 11:50 <laughs> and we're going we're really coming up on this right a vote gets taken a few minutes past 11 50 i believe i'm sure somebody will screenshot this and tell me i'm wrong it doesn't have the votes initially 38 votes we go oh my god it fell short by three needs 41 yeah yes you need a, you just need a majority for this one wix wasn't able to cast her vote so that was one
2: i knew oh right, well, at least i got she was, one she more she here was, you know breastfeeding her child she was but, yes, tending right. to her right. child right. this right. is yes. how insane
1: yes. things were right It comes back up at 11.56, I believe, Mm -hmm. and it has the votes, and it passes. here. It passes with 44 votes, 37 Democrats and seven Republicans, notable that it needed Republican votes to get through. So hooray, hooray for those who were backing the bill. The problem is there was not enough time to get the bill to the Senate for them to approve it, which, as you mentioned, would have happened without any problem whatsoever. Right. And so midnight strikes, I text people and I'm like, is there any way with legislative chicanery they can bring this back up? And the answer is no, it's
2: gone. So even though the bill passed both houses, it still does not become law. Truly amazing. Well, it still doesn't even go to the governor for him to sign it not because yes that's right so
1: that was the uh midnight drama from monday and and then the question becomes who was responsible what happened
2: and we should make clear like this doesn't happen like if a bill is gonna get buried it doesn't come up for a vote Right. That's the way typically things work. not. Yeah. And difficult bills or controversial bills or whatever often get buried. That's that's hardly news. Yeah, that's the way things work. But if bills go up for a vote like this, I've never seen a situation where like the bill would come for a vote and then just there wouldn't be enough time for it to actually get back for a final vote. That's not the way this typically works. No, which begs questions as to why this happened this well, way. Well, it implies it was a mess up by somebody, at least some person to let the situation occur as it did. So let's talk about Speaker Rendon and let's frame this
1: in terms of the parties that might have been responsible for this happening in this way. Right. And so if you had to finger one person, yes, it is Speaker Rendon. Speaker Rendon could have brought this up for a vote whenever he wanted to.
2: Yeah, and again, like they ran out of time, but they took Friday and Saturday off in the assembly. They were like chatting about other things that were not directly related to Bill. There was plenty of time for them to have voted on this earlier if they wanted to.
1: Speaker Rendon gave comments to the San Francisco Chronicle. Shout out to Alexi, great reporter there who covers the Capitol. The
2: pro temp, you mean?
1: I'm sorry. Pro Tem Atkins never told me that this was such a high priority that we needed to vote on it. That's why it kind of fell there towards the end which is strains credulity. I mean, it had Atkins name on it. It was the housing production package. Obviously, this was important to Atkins. Yeah. And her staff, I'm sure communicated that to Rendon. That doesn't really suffice as, as a justification. What did she say? So I asked her, you know, point blank, do you think he deliberately held it so that You guys couldn't get it into concurrence. And then she said, well, it makes you wonder. (laughs) That was her response.
2: We said we got a Spider-Man pointing meme going on
1: between the two of those folks. Sure. So let's just quickly go through the motivations for Rendon just really quickly. What could have motivated him from getting a vote until this late? So I think there's three factors that explain what happened with Rendon and the bill. Or could explain. Could explain. Yes. Let's be 100% clear here. Could explain. Leverage, so holding the bill so that whatever he wanted out of the Senate got through. Revenge, which is kind of a strong word for it, but kind of political payback for something that Atkins did in the past that upset him or maybe happened that night. And the third is chaos, just kind of the absolute madness that is the last day of session when all these bills have to pass before midnight. It's that blend, right? The leverage portion, whether he was waiting for a specific bill to get off the Senate, I have not been able to verify. It's possible. That's certainly part of the horse trading that goes on this late at night at the end of session. You know, I've been told by multiple sources, and this has been publicly reported, relationship between the two chambers is really frayed right now. And that is partly because of the remote voting issue. Yeah. where the Senate has allowed remote voting and the Assembly hasn't, for the most part. And also, because of the pandemic and the shortened window for the legislative season, certain bills had to be just kind of cut. Right. That did not go over well with certain Assembly members. So that could have been part of it. And then I think is having the vote. Like you referenced earlier, the one part of it that doesn't really compute for me is,
2: why have the vote? Lawmakers only want to take difficult votes if there's a payoff exactly. at the end. And so, why you actually hold the vote to put everybody on record? I mean, you know, you know, Evan Lowe, assemblyman from Silicon Valley, represents Cupertino. You know, ended up voting for this. I'm sure there are many people in Cupertino who are engaged in housing issues, not so happy with Assemblyman Lowe right now. Well, you know, why for him should he want to take that vote in favor of this bill if it's not actually going to become law? now he gets all the negatives getting yelled at without any of the positives, which is past policy you believe in, presumably. That is exactly right. And there are multiple
1: members that, I mean, Sharon Cork-Silva, Democrat from Orange County, this is not an easy vote for her. Yeah. uh You know, and she's in a competitive race. Right. This is the type of bill where you could get attacked for voting for it it's that controversial, right? When people say, well, he did this deliberately. So he could have kind of say he passed it, but oh, no, time ran out, right? That part just doesn't compute for me, it seems like a mistake somewhere was made. Yeah. But <laughs> it also I think undoubtedly shows that this bill was not a priority for the speaker. I mean, just having the vote at 1130 in and of itself kind of shows that. So it's not as if the Senate was perfectly functional during this entire period, and this could have trickled into some of the drama around 1120. The Senate was in chaos. Democrats were alleging that Republicans were filibustering, they were voting remotely via Zoom because one of their members had tested positive for COVID. It was just a mess. And so the pace was real slow in the Senate. And so that could have affected the bill coming out of the Assembly Right. as well just want to put that on the
2: table there so i'm going to do i'm going to do a quick recap 2019 major housing production bills you know senate bill 50 etc you know none of them oh, go back to
1: 2018 go back oh, to 2018. oh god do I'll it right. right baby do it, do it right. right okay so
2: 2018 first iteration of uh, senate bill 50 at the time was sba 27 fails and there's you know promises for big pushes on housing production, particularly with the new governor coming in who had promised a multifold increase in new home development as the centerpiece of his, his housing affordability plan. So there was a thought that 2019, big year on housing production. Uh, and again, I want to make clear, the idea to do this doesn't have to be SB50, but these are the biggest kind of production ideas that were kind of out there, right? So SB50 comes in 2019, fails later on, uh, but still fails pretty early. And again, promises from legislative leadership and the governor that they'll push something forward to do a lot of production. 2020, SB50 fails again in January, and now even more committed promises from the governor and Senator Atkins in particular to have make this the quote year of housing production. Then pandemic hits Senate still puts out sort of a collection of bills that aims to increase housing production. But at the end of the day, not just as SB 1120, but literally all of those Senate housing production bills fail.
1: And just to put it out there, I have a, I, what I think is a very nice Twitter thread that I put out the night of vote to, on how we got here. Just FYI there, Liam.
2: Yes. Good thread. Look at Matt's mm. thread. Retweet it, even.
1: (laughs) Actually, don't. I don't want to argue about Marin County anymore. Uh, So that's the context going into next year. So here, let, let me do my silver lining hat here. There is a possibility, and I've spoken with people who have basically told me I'm an idiot on this. Other people think this could be the case, that this is actually a good thing long term for a housing production package. Because it might trigger the governor's involvement. As you've mentioned, we have now had three iterations here. Two on his watch. Two on his watch that haven't gotten through and Newsom was not heavily engaged. There hasn't been a housing production bill to the scope that Newsom talked about during the campaign or a combination of bills. Right. Next year will also, knock on wood, be a more normal year in terms of legislative process and the amount of attention people can devote to this issue. Right. So, it is possible that a package of bills comes back even stronger in terms of the number of units that it could produce than what would have happened if this duplex bill got passed. I think that's a a real possibility dependent on the governor's involvement and dependent on you know whatever other black swan,
2: awful things happen between now and (laughs) 2021. Right. So I don't know. What do you think of that? Maybe. I think one thing, though, that I think speaks against that possibility is that the first year in particular, the state was blessed with a huge budget surplus. You know, money makes things a lot easier. And so, yep. I, you know, I think a lot of advocates, and I think rightfully so, argue that, you know, there needs to be not just necessarily an increase in housing production overall, but something that's targeted towards lower income housing. And the way that that gets done is that, you know, you finance it. And if the state is once again in a big budget hole, which I think is totally to be expected given the economic- I would uh, say probable. Yeah, yes. more than probable, like 80%, 95%, 99%, particularly if there's no federal help, then like that money's not gonna be there to sweeten the pot or make it easier for some of the, again, much needed low-income housing to be part of a package on housing production.
1: Everything you said totally makes sense. Let me just also note, kind of going along with your argument, this duplex bill, the League of Cities did not oppose this bill. right? Also, some notable anti-gentrification groups, which loathed SB50, right? Yeah. <laughs> did not oppose this bill. Yeah. So if you come back with something that is more aggressive, you might encounter that opposition, which has proven very politically potent. So this one was more mild and thus avoided a lot of the opposition, and it passed. I think people are forgetting this. It passed. Both chambers passed it. It just didn't become law. And that seems more to do with the chaos of the session and
2: interchamber politics than the politics around the bill itself. I don't want to discount the politics around the bill itself were still intense. And the reason why it was a 25 minute or wherever long it was debate on the floor where many Democratic members in particular, you know, stood up and said that they thought this would hurt their community. So this was not just, you know, oh, well, we forgot about it. There was a significant and intense opposition to this bill from, I guess, predominantly, oh, yes. you know, neighborhood groups, and particularly those that came out of Los Angeles.
1: Yes, yes. Neighborhood groups and LA lawmakers and local elected officials, too.
2: Yep. Okay.
1: And with that, let's talk with somebody who lived through that all with a baby Assemblymember
2: Buffy Wicks. We're here with Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks. She's a Democrat who represents Oakland, Berkeley, and Richmond in the Bay Area. Assemblywoman Wicks, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thanks for having me. I have been dying to be on this podcast. It's one of my favorites, so I'm
2: happy to be here. Yes. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's Stirring great. Stirring endorsement. Yes. Uh, so, uh, first question, Assemblywoman, uh, how was your Monday?
0: Totally relaxing. He's got nannies and petties, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, it was pretty insane. I, I didn't even know really where to start on it. But, you know, I left Oakland pretty early in the morning. We packed up my eight-pound, four-week-old, and off we went to the Capitol. knew <laughs> It was going to be a pretty contentious day in terms of bills. A lot of nail biters there. The plastics bill, 1120, the housing bill you know, the paid leave bill. There was a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff happening, which is why I really wanted to be there with my daughter in tow. And frankly, I spent most of the day in my office. I didn't want to expose her to the floor. You know, we have about a hundred sure. people at any given moment on the floor, wandering around and didn't want to have her down there. So I spent most of the day on the floor, but obviously wanted to speak on SB 1120, which you may have seen. So I did that. <laughs> okay. but yeah, pretty crazy day and i will say my day was crazy because i spent like you know you have a newborn you're feeding her every two hours and my daughter will do this thing where she feeds and she falls asleep she wakes up half an hour later and wants to feed again it's just it's just you know it's her world i'm living in it so uh I did that for a lot of the day and then also all the bills so i was i was multitasking
1: so for the five people who aren't on twitter or facebook who are blissfully uh, perhaps unaware of what happened could you explain in your own words why ellie was there why you had to bring her
0: yeah, so um, my daughter was born July twenty sixth, uh, end of July, and I had a C section, and I went on maternity leave right away. And We have a, a good maternity leave policy in the assembly. And obviously, I knew I was going to miss a lot of August, and colleagues started reaching out to me throughout the course of the month, asking, especially as we closer to the end of the month, "Are you proxy voting? Or are you going to come up? Or were you out of my bills?" And there was a lot of contentious bills. I also I got seven bills to the governor's desk, so I had bills myself, and so I was trying to figure out. Was I going to participate? And if so, how was I going to do that? So I'd ask to see if I could proxy vote. We had a new proxy vote in place, but we were told that maternity leave didn't qualify for that. And so I was trying to figure out what do I do? And so my husband and I chatted about it and I decided... I'll go up for Monday when that's when most of the bills are probably going to be picked up and heard. And I think I'm just going to bring my daughter with me because she's feeding, you know, we're breastfeeding. And Um, and she hasn't been away from me for this whole month. And so I did that and brought her with me. And, you know, obviously, I think the image that sort of I think ended up going pretty viral was, The speech I gave on the floor for in support of SB 1120, Tony Atkinsville Mm -hmm. for duplexes with my daughter kind of with me. And the reality of the matter is I was upstairs in my office. I'm on the fifth floor. We didn't know when that bill was going to be heard i really wanted that bill to pass i'm not a co-author or anything i just think it's a great bill the way we can create more density in a kind of a thoughtful way It's a pretty simple bill in terms of allowing for duplexes and i know you know uh, my colleague rob Revis was for managing it and he and i had been chatting kind of throughout the day and prior to the week in terms of the votes and stuff so i knew it was going to be close and then all of a sudden i'm feeding ellie and then i look up at the tv and like 1120 is being called and
1: so you found out from the tv
0: well, the T V and then Rebus texted me right then. Yeah, said, yeah. The bill's on, I need your help. You <laughs> know? And I knew we were coming up against this midnight deadline where they right. had all these bills from into, into pumpkins. So she was feeding, and I basically kind of like detached her and just scooped her up in my arms and threw a blanket over her and like ran down two flights of stairs, got to the floor and Kevin Mullen was presiding. And he's like, you want to speak? And I was like, yes. And there was obviously a lot of microphones up. He let me speak ahead of folks. Cause obviously I was with my daughter and he wanted to accommodate that. And I just jumped mm-hmm, up on sure. the podium. I didn't have any like prepared remarks or anything. And I wanted to speak very quickly because I knew the longer I spoke, the less time there would be for debate and getting the vote right. done and right. getting it back to the Senate. So it was just some very quick remarks. And then of course. Ellie was not thrilled with the notion that she was not feeding anymore. So. <laughs> she started crying for dramatic effect. And I was like, okay, i got to go feed my daughter. And yeah. I'm talking and I'm done and off I go. And then I went to the rules committee room, finished feeding her. And that was it.
2: You talked about wanting to vote proxy, and to be clear, voting by proxy meant you would have been allowed to vote remotely, so you wouldn't have had to have been on site had your request to Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon and the Assembly staff been approved. So later on, after again, as you said, this sort of very affecting moment, the next day, Speaker Rendon apologized for not letting you do that, not letting you be off site. Do you accept his apology?
0: Yeah course. And I have yeah. a good relationship with the speaker and he and I have chatted on and off over the last couple of days as the stuff yeah. you know unfolded. And I think he wanted to make it work. I think they had a, a legal definition that was pretty narrow. My hope is that we can, moving forward, think about different kinds of accommodation. And it's not just my case as an example, but we have members who care for elder parents. We have members whose spouses have severely compromised immune systems are we kind of accommodating members so that we can continue to do the work that we do while still making us all safe my hope is coming out of this is that we'll have some change and the speaker and I've had good conversations towards that end so I'm confident we can kind of figure that out and then more broadly I think that sort of moment I think went viral because any new mom has gone through that experience maybe not on the assembly floor but in many (laughs) other different types of situations where your kid's hungry you've got something to do you're juggling all these you watch the video and you're like My mask is falling down. I'm trying to hold that up. I'm trying to keep the blanket on. I'm trying to talk. I'm trying to like advocate for this bill. My daughter's crying. And so that's, I think, actually a common experience for a lot of women. So like I said, I have enormous respect for the speaker and I think we can work on some better solutions
1: on this. So on that note, do you fear any retaliation down the line on this in terms of kind of your legislative priorities? Because obviously Speaker Rendon has gotten a lot of negative media attention around what happened
0: he does not strike me as, in the dealings that I've had with him as someone who's going to hold something like this against someone like me. Like I said, okay. I think he wanted to make it work and he and I have spoken quite a bit and I have a good relationship with him. We have a lot of great similar kind of core values on policy stuff. And I find him to be like, you know, a very easygoing person to work with. And have worked with him over the course of my still evolving career that, you know, I'm obviously only in my second year, but he's been very welcoming and opening to me. You know, when I told him I was pregnant, he was just like, how much time do you need? And he was very excited for me and all those things. So no, I don't have any like the fear of retaliation.
2: So getting back to the bill you spoke on, the duplex bill, it was certainly passed or around 1130 when the conversation even began. As you mentioned pretty soon after that, all bills were going to turn into pumpkins that hadn't been approved yet. Why do you think it took so long for that bill to come up for a vote? I
0: mean, I, that's a good question. And Rob's probably a better person to ask that or folks who were kind of managing the floor. We had a lot of bills in a very short period of time, and I'm sure you guys were following it. And we had bills that were on call. And I just think it's always happened of this end of year thing where, and obviously it was different this year because the midnight deadline, which last year was different. I think we went until like two o'clock in the morning last time, but there was just a bunch of stuff that kind of like came up right there at the end and plastic still, I think was still on call. We had to do that final vote.
2: Policing stuff too mm-hmm. was still out there. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff happening quickly. And frankly, I just wanted to like get these votes done and get off the floor you know, And in fact, Speaker Rendon, I ran into him at that moment. He's like, do you want to go to my office? Because he knew I had Ellie with me and he didn't yeah. want to give me that space. Yeah. But I knew stuff was coming on call. I was like, no, let me just vote on this really quickly so we can get out of here. But it's a good question as to why. you know. And I think there's always this sort of stuff happening kind of at the end of when these bills get scheduled and when they go mm-hmm. and when do we have the votes and when do we not have the votes. I wasn't working the vote card on this one, so I'm not totally positive in terms of those dynamics, but it did lend itself certainly for like in political legislative world, like high drama, right? Yes. And it's, it's a real shame though, that it didn't get back to the Senate. I'm very, very bummed that a lot of people put a lot of work into that bill in both houses, but obviously the Senate pro tem, and it was a really, really good bill. And it's just such a bummer, it didn't make it back in time.
1: Um, so I, I just want to be clear here. Do, do you think the fact that 1120 was held so long, it sounds like you're saying it was more a function of kind of the common disorder and chaos that was exacerbated by the pandemic that you see end of session, as opposed to what a lot of people have alleged, which is Sabotage. Written... <laughs> well, that's a very direct That's a very direct way of putting it. Yeah. But, but let's just say interchamber rivalry and political maneuvering between the chambers.
0: I wasn't involved in this bill specifically. I've heard those rumors as well. Frankly, I've been spending most of my time on leave. This year in particular, or sorry, rather the last, you know, sort of month, haven't been as involved in kind of the machinations of that process. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably, it's hard for me to kind of speak to it, but I do think people in in the end of the day, in good faith, want to get the Senate and Assembly want to get their bills across and, and get this stuff done. And in the end of the day, I believe in the goodness of people, and I believe that we have Democratic control, Assembly and Senate, and I think that we can work together to solve these problems. And I hope that even if that was the situation, which I don't know if it was, but can we come together next year to actually do a real serious legislative package? In the Assembly and the Senate, that's about solving our housing crisis and about solving our homelessness problem. And that's what the focus I'm interested in having next year. It is on us. We are failing our constituents right now on these issues. And I want to be a part of the solution. And I want to work with people who are part of the solution and put together these sound public policies that actually help build housing and help build affordable housing and all the other things that you guys talk about every fortnight on your show. (laughs) Um, And I do think there's a number of committed legislators on both sides in the Senate and assembly that feel the
2: same way. So one thing I want to ask about that is I think a lot of people have very different definitions of what the housing affordability problem in the state is And what the solutions are. I mean, I think it's wide agreement that there is one from literally the governor to the tenant who's shocked at their monthly rent payment. Right. But again, I think a wide variety of dispute in terms of what the sort of fundamental core causes of this problem are and what the solutions are. And so I'd love to hear from your perspective what you think it would take to solve the housing affordability problems in the state.
0: From what I've seen, and again, I'm only my second year here and was heavily, you know, immersed in housing politics during my race because housing was a big issue in my race. And obviously there was a lot going on on the ballot at that time too. But what I've seen is I think historically the debate has been around, do you build more homes or do you protect tenants in its most simple terms? that those are kind of the two options that we kind of give ourselves. But I think that's a false choice. And I think we actually have to do both and we have to do them in a thoughtful way. But I certainly do believe we have to build more housing. You know, as I mentioned on my floor speech, we're 3.5 million homes shy of where we need to be. So I think that involves housing at all income levels, low income, subsidized, affordable housing, middle income, market rate housing. I think all of the above is needed. They're also, the need to protect tenants, you know, and I've run tenant bills. I worked with David Chu very closely last year in 1482.
2: The rent cap. The rent cap bill. Yeah. The rent
0: cap bill the sort of anti gouging bill. And I thought that bill was a real thoughtful way of allowing landlords flexibility to increase rents, but really guarding against those kind of most egregious cases that we, we have seen, right, of the rent increasing 50%, rent increasing 75%. So I think we have to put in those safeguards as well. And I think sometimes these conversations, like, you're kind of one camp or the other, and I think you can be both, and we should be both, in my opinion, um, to do what we need to do. But the production side is hard. I mean, you see it in these votes. You saw it with SG 50 um, You know, I had a bill, AB 725, that got through this year that was about increasing multifamily housing and moderate and above moderate communities. And that was a tough bill that barely got through both the assembly and the Senate. So they're difficult to get through, but that's why it's like figuring out who in both the Senate and assembly, how are we going to work together How is leadership going to put a shoulder to the wheel on it, both in the Assembly, the Senate, and the governor's office, so that we can get some more serious production bills through and get some more tenant protections through? And obviously, we did a lot of tenant protection stuff last year. We did some this year, which I know has sort of mixed bag in terms of who's supporting it and who's not. seems like no one's happy with the bill that was just passed um, on Monday night. But it's better than nothing, and that's not that we should be striving for better than nothing. But in the end of the day, that's how this legislative process goes through, where you end up kind of making these concessions to get the bill through, and that's kind of the reality that we lawmakers are faced with in terms of moving these, this legislation through. And I do think having some protections is better than having no protections, and so that's where we sort of ultimately landed with it. But you know, I think that's how it's historically been, and I guess the question is like, what do we do moving forward, and how do we come together, and how do we do it in the COVID world that we're living in now? I mean. This legislative session really upended the whole legislative process. As I'm sure you guys have discussed, you know, I had 20 bills and I ended up with seven. And there were others who ended up with fewer than that because we just didn't have the time to go through the process that bills deserve to go through in terms of committee hearings and whatnot. But the problem of the matter is, the rest, the housing crisis is going to get even worse. I worry about the evictions. And it'll be interesting to see, actually, like at least in my area, right, San Francisco, rents have gone down. And how, like, what's happening now with the remote working that looks like, and you hear about <laughs> a lot of the folks in San Francisco are, like, heading for the hills to buy their bunkers. You know, like, yeah. So, like, how does that going to impact the real estate market? How is that going to impact rents? But I still think in the end of the day, people are going to be squeezed and we have to figure out solutions to the problems.
1: I just want to quickly ask one more question about the duplex bill. So one line of argument against the bill that you saw on the floor from some of your colleagues was that it would accelerate gentrification. And you obviously represent some communities in Oakland and Richmond and other parts of the East Bay that are vulnerable to gentrification or have already experienced in it. What is your argument to your constituents that SB 1120 would help more than it hurt?
0: I think fundamentally more housing means more affordability in terms of like what you have now in you know my area is i have tech workers who make a lot of money comparatively speaking who are competing with nurses and teachers for housing stock in the east bay And so the teachers and the nurses and the the baristas, you know, of the world are struggling to find affordable places to live. Like I have teachers that live in Stockton and Tracy and commute to Oakland and Berkeley every day and are spending four hours a day in their car because we have higher paid folks coming in to buy homes, right? And The reason why is because we have such a shortage of housing. Now, if we had more homes, (laughs) the price wouldn't be so expensive. And so what this bill did fundamentally was create more housing stock to take some of that pressure off. So I think in the end of the day, that is very important. And I think you can put bargains in around some of the the gentrification stuff, but I think it's very critical that we have bills that enable us to build more housing at all income levels and that that will help. And we've seen other places that have done that, places like Seattle and others where that has worked. And I think, you know, in California, we have a particular attachment to single family homes. And historically, that is what California has been built on. And there's a lot of communities here. and, And I totally understand that. But allowing for duplexes in those zones, I think, is a thoughtful way to create more density while still respecting the character of the community and otherwise and to allow for more affordability.
2: You brought up tenant protections. I'm curious, Prop 21 is a rent control measure on the, on the ballot in November. And how do you plan to vote on that?
0: I haven't actually read through it. and In fact, I need to you know, read through all the props, but I haven't actually read through it. But the thing that I do appreciate about it is the fact that they put the new construction exemption piece in there, which didn't exist in Prop 10 last time.
2: How did you vote on Prop 10?
0: I didn't support Prop 10 in 2018 because I was concerned about talking with folks who are affordable housing developers and others about the concern that it could have an unintended consequence of halting more housing production when I think that's a really key, important part of the solution. So I didn't support it, but I do appreciate the fact that they put the new construction exemption piece into this. But I'll take a look at it. I'll probably support it. I haven't read the whole thing through, but that piece of it
1: makes me feel a lot better about it.
2: So again, just to be clear, you, you have not formally said yes or no, but you, you sound inclined to support support it this time. Yep. Okay.
1: Earlier, you mentioned um, in, in terms of a, a future housing production bill, the importance of Governor Newsom possibly becoming involved. If Newsom was involved on 1120, if he was explicitly supporting it, does it become law?
0: I mean, I think for all these bills, we need everyone involved, you know, and obviously Senator Atkins is managing the bill the way that she knows how and she's a queen and God bless and I love her. And she's the one who knows how to maneuver her legislature, certainly, and she knows the assembly as well. So I think she did a great job of moving that bill around. But I think it's always great to have the governor involved. I mean, you look at what happened with the rent cap bill last year with community yeah. too, where the governor was very involved in that bill, you know, at the staff level and him personally as well. And we needed that to get it through. And so I do think on these bigger bills, it's important to have his participation. And I mean, obviously he is dealing with a lot right now. I'm sure he didn't think going into this job that it was gonna be like this. But between the wildfires and COVID and the economic fallout. And you look at like his state of the state address in January, right. in terms of sort of the vision of what he laid out. And I was front row jumping up, clapping on all these things he was talking about. He was speaking my language on housing and homelessness and stuff. And then for all of us, all of a sudden mid March hits States shut down, no more money, everything changes. Yeah. yeah, So we have to crawl our way out of that. But I think it's always important to have his voice,
2: his leadership on it.
0: And I think he cares about it. He campaigned on housing production. So I think it's always good to have him involved.
2: So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, he says he did campaign on housing production, three and a half million new homes by 2025 you referenced that number earlier as well would be an unprecedented massive increase in housing production that we've ever sort of seen in modern memory statewide if that were to happen he also talked very early on in his tenure about a quote-unquote marshall plan for housing you know we are where we are right now how would you evaluate how he's done on this issue in the first two years of his tenure
0: well, you know, he put his shoulder to the wheel on 1482, as I said. He was involved in SB50, trying to get that through. He's been involved in these housing bills. And I'm not a housing chair. I know that obviously David Chu and Scott Wiener, I think, are in our respective bodies. And I know they talk with him pretty regularly. And I know the Speaker works with the Pro Tem on those bills as well. Any housing bill that I've gotten to him, he signed. And I'm sending him two more housing bills, my 725 and, of course, my church parking lot bill. He will sign those. So, I think he's very amenable to obviously signing stuff, but then working on the bills as well. And I think that this year was going to be the year when he was going to be doubling down on those campaign promises. And you saw that in his state of the state. He was making very clear intentionality around that. And then, as I said, I think Cope really has upended a lot of that stuff just because he's dealing with the realities of, this global pandemic, the stressors on our government with regard to unemployment and all the other things. I mean, it's been sort of one thing after another. And so I think he's been managing those crises, but I know that he is committed to the the production side and the tenant stuff and will continue to keep working on that stuff. I hope is that next year, And again, it's going to kind of depend on the the crisis and and whatnot, but willing at some point we get a vaccine and we can kind of go back to our economy being open and all those things. But my hope is that next year we can all double down on the housing question across the board, the Senate, the Assembly, and the governor, and really put forth an aggressive package.
1: Let's talk about the church parking bill. And then Liam, I know you have a beef with the Assembly member because you weren't listed as a co-author. And so... Assembly member, if you could explain to Liam why he wasn't, I think it would kind of make everybody more comfortable on this podcast. I try to
0: keep his like his ethical reporter line.
1: You
0: know? <laughs> 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 it was like my one of my favorite bills. It's just so obvious. It's one of those things that's just like so obvious. And obviously, I heard about it on the podcast. You know, the situation in San Diego, and I met with nonprofit affordable housing developers who are doing good work and who are working with different churches in the Bay Area who were trying to build housing New Way Homes is the one I was talking to. And they actually had a model where they work with philanthropic dollars, which don't need a, a high ROI, who invest in, in you know affordable housing on these church parking lots. And so they had this great way where it didn't even cost taxpayer money to build affordable housing and a place where it was wanted in these churches. And what they were running up against is these parking requirements. So and if you talk to both them and the churches, and we obviously worked closely with the faith community as well, the churches will figure out how to make sure that their parishioners can get to churches every Sunday. There's ways to fix that. There's the local high school. They can, you know, run shuttles from their parking lot to the church. People can carpool. There's different ways that they can address that. Mm. But to have this space and end up being, I think, I turned this in our report. I think it was like 38,000 acres or something like that of land available uh, in California that could be used for this. Felt like such a perfect thing to fix. (laughs) So the bill basically reduced the parking requirements that local municipalities could put on churches for affordable housing. So you guys were very much part of that inspiration. I appreciate, it. and you know, and as I mentioned on Twitter, my goal now is to take every avocado Fortnite and have a legislative fix on it. So I'm looking to you guys for policy inspiration. Sure.
2: Well, now, I mean, now it's now it's like it's like the the galaxy brain situation because you you are in fact the avocado of the Fortnite. So that's just like I don't even know how. <laughs> Very meta. Yeah, what's the legislative fix, you know? Very meta. I
0: know. And as I, as I said, I, was like, I just feel like I've really arrived in, like, the housing policy circles, right? <laughs> <laughs> in the strangest way possible.
1: First off, real quickly, we should credit some of the reporters in San Diego who I think we cribbed off for the avocado of the fortnight, so that real quickly. And then yes. that's it. Thank you so much, Assemblymember. This was fun feel free to uh, come on the podcast anytime.
0: You guys are my favorite. So thank you for having me and for having such great coverage on this issue. So I will come back whenever you guys ask.
1: Great. Great. Sounds good. Thank you.
2: Thanks again. We really appreciate it too.
1: Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis
2: Podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And I am Liam Dillon from the LA Times. My Twitter is at Dylan Liam. Thanks, everyone. We asked for new rates and reviews last time. We got a goodly number of them, but we can always use more. So please keep doing it.
1: Yes, thank you so much. And we will be back in another fortnight. Thanks for listening.